The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Today, and I'm pretty certain that if uh, the power of God were offered to you right now, that, that you wouldn't say no, that we would readily accept the power of God in our lives. The fact is, for all kinds of reasons, uh, we have a real need for power. We have need for strength. We have the need for some evidence that God is working and with us in our lives. And you can kind of come up with that for yourself. What's the, what's the reason uh, that I have for God's power in my life? And in our study of Exodus so far, this is message number three. Moses has taken on the leadership, heard the call of God. He's on his way to Egypt. He's going to do the thing that God had told him to do. He's going to confront Pharaoh, and he's going to command the release of the Jewish slaves. And what is arguably, what we're going to look here, arguably one of the greatest displays of God's power next to perhaps the creation of the universe itself and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day, the bronze medal for the display of God's power goes uh, to uh, the ten plagues, the signs that God did in the midst of Egypt in the days of Moses. God unleashing his power on a stubborn leader and stubborn people with Israel looking on needing an intervention, needing the power of God in their lives. And so that's what we're going to see in Exodus 5 through 11 today. And uh, the thing is, it's not just about some ancient people and what God did then, but there are uh, solid principles for us here that are going to help us all uh, to have God's power fully unleashed in our lives. So you ready for that? If you're ready for that, say ready. ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, uh, to understand it to get it applying in our lives. And Father, uh, you know every need in the room. We've prayed that so often, but you really do. You know where your power is needed in each life. And I pray, God, that we would be comforted and cared for. Uh, Father, that we would understand your word and be so quick to obey it and to have it apply in our lives. So Father, thank you for hearing this prayer and being with us during this time. I pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, to fully unleash God's power in your life, Everybody loves this. Understand that it may get worse before it gets better. Yay! It's going to get worse. Well, no one likes to hear that, do they? Let's get to the text and see that that's exactly what happened to the children of Israel. Chapter 5, verse 1. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Now, what he is not saying here is that he doesn't know the Lord in the sense that I haven't accepted the Lord as my Savior. I don't worship the Lord. I don't know him in that way. What he's literally saying is, I don't know who he is. I've never heard of this Yahweh. I don't know anything about your God. I have zero knowledge of your God, and yet you're here saying that in his name I ought to release the Jewish slaves. I don't know him. And moreover, end of verse 2, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. 
Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks they make in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Verse 9, let heavier work be laid on the men so that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. And the account continues there, and the bottom line on all of this is uh, Moses and Aaron do the thing that God had told them to do. They got in front of Pharaoh. They commanded the release of the slaves. Pharaoh says, I don't even know who your God is. I don't know why you're keeping the people from their work. There's no way I'm letting them go. In fact, just because you came and visited and because you asked and because you're causing all this disturbance, here's what's going to happen next. I'm increasing their labor. I'm going to make it hard on them by not providing them the things they need to make the bricks. But I'm just telling you, they have to produce the same amount they did before. You got to meet the same quotas. And in fact, they didn't. Verse 14, the foremen of the people of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all of your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? They just flat out were not able to do this. The people were in trouble. Verse 21 says this, the Lord look on you and judge because you made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses expresses his frustration with the Lord. In verse 22, Moses turned to the Lord and he said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why, Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Check out how accusatory this is. And remember, he's talking to God. And check yourself to see if you would ever speak this way to the Lord. And you have not delivered your people at all. I mean, what's, what's with, Lord? You asked us to do something, we went and did it. Nothing. Moses is frustrated. Back in chapter 4, verses 29 through 21, Moses and Aaron, uh, 29 through 31, Moses and Aaron actually had some success. When they finally got back to Egypt, they met with the elders, they met with the people, they told them the plan, and the people actually worshiped the Lord. They were so excited that deliverance had come, that their prayers over hundreds of years had been heard. God was on the move. He was going to rescue them, but they only heard, listen, this is... So much a problem that we have with the word of God. We only hear the parts we like. And in fact, there's part of the message that God had delivered that clearly they had forgotten. Back in chapter 3, verse 19, the king of Egypt, God said this, the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. In other words, when you go and ask him if you can go, I'm just going to tell you right now, he's not going to say yes. It's going to take a mighty, powerful hand to convince him to let you go. So your words alone are not going to get that done. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 21, God said this, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. They went in knowing 
that the ask was not going to be successful. And so we ask the question, why on the other end of it, when that actually happened, were they surprised? Why is there disappointment with God? There ought not to be. They should have expected this result. God told told them as much. He told them, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I would just say to us, never make the assumption that believing and obeying the word of God is going to result in a life of ease. You've never heard me preach that message and you can't find it anywhere in the Bible. You see, God is really creating an impossible situation here and he's pushing everyone to the edge so that when he shows his power, it's undeniably him. And he gets the glory for the great thing that's going to happen. And that's always God's MO. God's way of working in our lives is to push us to the end of ourselves. To get us to the place where we realize we're out of reserves and we can't tap into our own power or energy any longer. That it has to be him. We have to hit bottom. We have to be desperate. And then God intervenes in power. And the reality is that's so true for for anyone here who's ever become a follower of Jesus Christ is you have to get to the place where there's no other options but the Lord. And you're compelled to believe in him and follow him. And you know that if you're a genuine Christ follower. You know that it needed to get worse before it got better. And and the reality is that even as you follow Christ, even as you walk with him, it still may be that way. In fact, it is going to be that way as God increases your faith and builds endurance and does his work in you and brings glory to his own name as a result of the way you're living. We're not promised a life of ease. We're bound for glory. We've said it already in the series. We're bound for glory, but we're not there yet. But even as that is true, that it may get worse before it gets better, look at this. Maintain hope in God's promises no matter what. See, God reiterates his promise to Moses in chapter 6. The Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, and and five times now in the next several verses, he's going to say, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. This This is his personal name, Yahweh. I am who I am. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. Verse 5, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel. I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people, verse 6, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Promise, promise, promise. God's word over and over again, based on his name. And verse 7, you ought to have this underlined in the Bible. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now, that's, that's not just for the, for the Jews living in Egypt. That's just not a promise from 3,400 years ago. That's for you and me. That's the whole gig. That's everything God is doing. He's just making it possible for us through Jesus Christ to get in relationship with him. So we can know him as the Lord and he can know us. He's taking us to be his people. 
Verse eight, I'll bring you into the land. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. But even though he says all of this, in other words, he's saying the whole thing is just based on my word. It's just based on what I said to you and the promises that I've made to you. But the people are so super discouraged. Verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. They didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit, because of the harsh slavery that they were under. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I'm of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and he gave them a charge, a command, about the people of Israel, about the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel. Just gave them a command. He said, just go do it. It's all based on God's word. We need to just trust in what he says. Moses is beaten down. He's discouraged. He wants out. But God makes the assurance, you're, you're, you're my people. I'm going to bring you to myself. No matter what happens in life, you belong to the Lord. No matter what circumstances or difficulties you go through, no matter how dark the valley may seem to you, you belong to the Lord. He's made a promise to all who believe in his name and all who follow him. That is your hope. Not necessarily to be fulfilled in our earthly lifetime, but to be fulfilled. God will keep his promise, and you and I will be taken to be one of his people. We take God at his word no matter what. And again, we like the God's promises. We like the taking God at his word. We just don't like the no matter what part. But the reality is, you know, if we think about the the Christian life and becoming Christ-like, which is really our goal, we want to become like Jesus, and, and we think about that, if you could think about it in terms of a recipe, all right? And in order for a recipe to work, all the ingredients have to be there, correct? All the ingredients have to be there. And, and, so, and so if you think about it this way, um, one part, I want to become like Jesus, one part, the word of God. Okay, that's an ingredient that has to be there if I want to be like Jesus. One part, the word of God, and then listen, this is the ingredient we don't like. One part, trials and testing. One part, the word of God. One part, trials and testing. Get those two ingredients together and then mix vigorously. Mix vigorously and then add heat for a time. And the result of that is Christ-likeness. And we fail if we think we can have the word of God and not test it. We fail if we think we can have the word of God and not have it apply to our lives at the most difficult seasons of life that we go through. And if that's what you're trying, I want the promises, I want the good parts, I want, I want everything that's a blessing from this, but I don't want any talk of the more difficult things, I don't want the trials and testing, then in essence, if all you want is this part, then your faith is theoretical, not experiential. And in fact, I would say this. Um, Alex Moyer is uh, one of the uh, commentators I'm using through this series. He just said this. There's no such thing as an untested faith. It just doesn't exist. 
a faith that's genuine is tested. In Proverbs 30, verse 5, just the first part of that verse, every word of God proves true. The, the phrase proves true is it's the smelting word. It's the refining word. It's the purifying word. And the word of God proves true in my life as I apply it to my life, as it's tested and proven and purifying in my life. And based on that alone, if I could believe that, the Lord gave them a charge. He gave them, gave them a command to do what he told them to do. And in essence, he's saying to them, no one's going anywhere. No one's quitting anything. No one's turning back. I told you to bring the people out of Egypt. That has not yet been accomplished. And so get to it. Do the thing I told you to do. And that's really where chapter 7 takes us. Continue to do what God has commanded you to do. So they heeded the command of the Lord. They went back to Pharaoh, chapter 7 now. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. Your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Remember when Pharaoh said, I don't even know who the Lord is? They're going to know. They're going to find out big time when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Oh, that that could be the epitaph over all of our lives. Okay, oh, that that could be true of all of us, that, that, that we just did so. We did just as the Lord commanded. It's an awesome thing. It started with an opening act here, verse 8. Kind of, we'll just call this, because the, the Lord's going to start showing signs and wonders. And so this is just a little sign, a little wonder, just a little bit, just to kind of get the ball rolling um, there's a big show coming, the main event, but this is an opening act uh, to that. And uh, it was the miracle that the little sign that God had given to Moses in the wilderness, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh. So you remember this whole gig. Uh, Moses, Moses had a staff and Aaron had a staff. And um, the miracle was that when, we, when he threw down the staff on the ground, it became a snake. Remember that? How many people don't like snakes? Well, just be thankful. I was actually going to use a real one, um, but decided not to. And then pick up, good decision, correct? Um, so, so this little miracle happens. But, but Pharaoh then says, well, that's um, sort of impressive, but um, I've got magicians too, and I think they could pull this off as well. So he calls his magicians in, and they see the kind of little trick that um, Aaron did, the miracle that God uh, brought about. And uh, of course, I watch, um, every once in a while, you catch a show on TV that has some illusionists on it, some magicians on it, and I find that whole thing rather impressive. Penn and Teller, how many people know who I'm talking about when I say Penn and Teller? They're pretty famous, and they have this show, and they're impressive in terms of being illusionists. Um, and, and, uh, but they bring people on to try and trick them. And here's what I want to say about that. Every once in a while, some amateur magician will come on and trick these professionals. 
And it's actually kind of impressive that they get tricked. They don't know how the guy did the trick. And all I'm saying is that sleight of hand and doing illusions that are shocking to us that we can't figure out, that's pretty commonplace. That's exactly what happens here. Pharaoh calls in his magicians, and so they throw down their staffs, and their staffs become snakes, so that's pretty cool. But the thing that, that they couldn't help happening was that Aaron's snake then went and swallowed all their snakes. So end of sign one, and uh, just the opening act, just a little thing that God is doing, but they're at it. They're doing the thing that God had told them to do. They're in front of Pharaoh. Though they were feeling discouraged and feeling defeated, they just went and did it because God had commanded it. You know, over the years being a pastor, I've given counsel to lots of people in the midst of very discouraging days and trials that they were going through and difficult seasons, and my counsel to them has been over and over again, don't stop doing the things that disciples of Christ do. Don't stop serving. Don't stop going to your small group. Don't quit on being here for worship. If a follower of Christ is to be worshiping Christ and walking with Christ and working for Christ, then in the midst of your most difficult days, certainly don't stop doing those things. Keep getting together with God's people. Keep your place of service. Don't stop going to your small group and being in relationship with the very people you need to be in relationship with during your difficult season. Keep doing the things that God has commanded you to do. It's so tempting to circle the wagons and drop out and simply focus on on your thing. But I don't think anybody would say that that kind of self-centered isolationist move is healthy. You know, six years ago, our church went through a very difficult season, and some of you will remember that because you were here, and some of you won't know anything about it. But in the space of several months, we lost uh, maybe a quarter of our church. It was a very difficult time, and the details of all of that don't really matter anymore. We've sought to learn all the lessons that we could from it. But I remember in the midst of the, it was six years ago, last month when the whole thing happened, and, and I just remember we were in a pretty desperate place, and I, I met with our staff um, the Tuesday after, and I, I just said to them, look, all, all we can do is get the next Sunday service ready. That's it. It's all we had the energy for. It's all we could get our minds around. Things were so dark and desperate for us. We just need to get Sunday done. And so we all worked on Sunday because it was the most important thing. And then once it was done, I said, once we get that done, here's all we're going to do next week. We're just going to work on the next Sunday. And we're just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Those were dark, desperate days. It was so hard for everybody to kind of keep their focus and keep doing. And the temptation to quit and run away was there. To say to the Lord, we don't want to do it anymore. Here's what the Lord did in those days. Because I thought our churches sucked in those days. It was so bad. I mean, I didn't even want to come. And yet, there were people who came to Christ during those days. There were people who actually came to our church and, and thought it was great and stayed as visitors. They came and they thought it was great. And we were like, were you in the same service or same place? And those are little glimpses of God working. That's God saying, this is my work, not yours. And I'm going to keep working. And as long as you're faithful, as long as you keep doing the thing I told you to do, Todd, you get up and preach, and let's have some worship, and let's get people together and do that, and let's all serve one another. As long as we just keep doing that, we give God an opportunity to continue working. Amen? Continue to do what God has commanded you to do. And then let's, uh, in this last one, let's spend some time here. Trust God to vindicate himself and his people. 
You have to trust the Lord that his plan is perfect. I think we struggle a lot right here with this idea of vindication. Can we trust God to vindicate us when we've been, what we would say, we've been dealt a bad hand? And this is what Israel thought. They were eager to have it changed. Before we look at their situation and the injustice of it, though, let's talk about this. We're going we're gonna to work through the latter part of verse 7 and all the way to, through verse 11, uh, chapter 11, but let's put it all into perspective when we're talking about injustices. What do you think is the greatest injustice that's happened in history? Was it, was it Jewish slavery in Egypt? I would say to you, as horrific as that was, as painful as it was for the people, not the greatest injustice in history. Maybe it was African slavery. A horrible thing, reprehensible, inexcusable. Not the greatest injustice in history. Maybe in the 20th century, you might think of the Holocaust. Was that the greatest injustice of history? It certainly is fresh in our minds. It's rehearsed every year, rightfully so. As awful as it was, not the greatest injustice in history. Maybe would say in our generation it's the issue of abortion. Is that the greatest injustice of history? No. No, it's not. I think you know where I'm going with this. The greatest injustice in history was that the sinless Son of God. Philippians 2 tells us he set aside the, the independent use of his divine attributes and he took on human flesh. The creator of the universe, the creator of, of everything came and became part of the creation. Taking on flesh and identifying it with us in every way. Uh, an ultimate act of love and compassion and mercy. And for that he was falsely accused arrested, convicted, and condemned. It was the inhuman and cruel way that he was treated and the vicious death that he suffered on the cross. That's the greatest injustice in history. The event of his death occurred 2,000 years ago. And in some respects, we could say, well, but he was vindicated on the third day. It was only three days of injustice. But I would just ask you a question. Do you think the world today is all about Jesus and accepting of him and believing his message and believing that that was an injustice? Most of the world ignores him or doesn't know about him, rejects him outright, mocks him openly. In what, in what way would we say that Christ has been vindicated before the world? He hasn't been. Not yet. The final vindication doesn't come until he bursts through the clouds and culminates history and judges the world ultimately and finally. God's Son endured the greatest injustice in all history, and yet he's still waiting to be vindicated in the eyes of the world. And so with that as perspective, we go back to this matter of the Jews in Egypt, God's plan to vindicate himself before the Egyptians. And we get into these so-called ten plagues. We could spend a lot of time looking at details that are interesting and, and important, but let me just 
boil it down to. We're just going to drop into these a little bit, but nine essential truths about the plagues. Ready for these? Nine essential truths. I'm going to give you one word for each of them. The nature of them. The nature of the plagues is that, listen, they're not actually plagues. Not in the strictest sense of that word, and better to see them as signs. In fact, early on in chapter 7, he referred to them as signs and wonders, and their purpose was, again, to introduce Yahweh to both the Jews and to the Egyptians. He wanted to make himself known and show his power. So the nature of them is they're not plagues, but signs. Secondly, the number of them. There are really 12, not 10. 12 signs. We have the traditional 10 plagues, but the first sign, of course, was the staff being thrown on the ground and becoming a snake. That's the first sign, little, a little prelude to everything else that was going to happen. And then we have what we know as the 10 plagues. And then at the end of that, well, there was a 12th one. Let's actually just go through it here. The prelude was Aaron's uh, stake and snaff, staff. Signs 2, 3, and 4 would be plagues 1, 2, and 3. Uh, the Nile turning to blood or blood color frogs and gnats or biting insects. Let's just say mosquitoes because those things are just the biggest nuisance on the planet, correct? We'll just say mosquitoes. Signs five, six, and seven were plagues four, five, and six, flies, death of livestock, and boils. Signs eight, nine, and 10 were the plagues seven, eight, and nine, hail, locusts, and darkness. Sign 11 then would be the 10th plague, the most serious of them all was the death of the firstborn. We're going to look at that in our next message in Exodus 12 and 13. And then sign 12 is the postlude. It's the mopping up. It, it's, it's the epilogue to everything else. It's the destruction of the Egyptian army. And that's so important as a sign. We're going to see that two messages from now. But that's so important as a sign because, listen, that was the period at the end of the sentence for God to say to his people, you don't ever, ever have to worry about the Egyptian army again. They are never coming for you. I have ended the story. And so 12 signs that declared the awesomeness of who God is. And in fact, at the end of chapter 14, verse 31, Israel saw the great power. That's what we're talking about here. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. All right, nature number third. Let's look at intensity. God started small and he built up. Each sign increased in intensity. It increased in harm to life, in devastation. It culminated in the 10th plague as God's supreme act of justice, which launched the actual exodus. Fourth, the completeness of the plagues, of the signs. The 10 signs in the main body and the 12 overall. God loves numbers. Numbers communicate certain things. 10 and 12 both uh, signify completeness. So whether you see the 10 or the 12, it shows the completeness of God's work of judgment. Again, Israel would never have to worry about Egypt again. Number five, the intentionality behind it. None of this is random. God had a plan, in fact, and if you look at the slide, you can see this, that there's the opening act with the snake and the um, death of the firstborn and the destruction of the Egyptian army at the other end. But the three triads in the middle uh, read uh, top down, and uh, each of them is in a very specific pattern. The first plague in each of the triads, so uh, the uh, water to blood color, uh, the swarm of flies, and the hail, uh, these were all pronouncements that were made to Pharaoh early in the morning and outside. A conversation was had with Pharaoh when he was outside. Each of those plagues was a relatively short in duration, but a fairly high impact. 
Sorry, they were long in duration. Secondly, the second in each of the triads, in Pharaoh's court, this was an indoor confrontation between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. Uh, These had a longer duration. And the third um, in each of the triads came with no warning at all. Moses and Aaron didn't go to Pharaoh. They didn't warn him. It just happened, and they were of short duration, but very high personal and human impact. And all of that demonstrating great intentionality. In other words, you may read some things about the plagues or about the signs that says that these were naturally occurring phenomena, and there's no possible way they could have been because there's such intentionality by the Lord behind the whole thing. Number six, uh, purpose. Each of the signs was an assault on their pantheon of gods. A couple of examples. The Nile River was considered a god to them, and so when it turned blood color... In other words, it was polluted. It didn't turn to actual blood, but the Hebrew word for blood means blood or blood color. It's actual color. Uh, it was polluted in some way that killed all of the fish, uh, but it didn't have long-term permanent impact on the people. And so if the Nile is a god, and the real god turns it to blood color and kills all the fish, God is exercising his dominance over their god. Uh, same thing with uh, the plague of darkness. Their uh, sun god was Ra. He brought light to them, and when darkness fell over the land, that was God challenging their supreme god, the god Ra. And all of this is a showdown between, you you know, you could see it as, oh, this is a showdown between Moses and and Pharaoh, or this is a showdown between Israel and, and Egypt. But really, this is a showdown between God and the false gods of Egypt. And I think it's good for us to think about that in our own lives, that every battle we have is really a spiritual battle. We need to stop seeing, for example, we need to stop seeing marriage conflict as a conflict between husbands and wives. And we need to start seeing this as a spiritual conflict between uh, the forces of light and darkness, between uh, the Lord and the evil one. The Lord would have our marriages stay together and be healthy and strong and reflective of the relationship that we have with Christ. Uh, The evil one would destroy your marriages, make them contentious, separate them, divide them, tear them apart. And what I know about marriage is this, is if, if if a husband who's in a difficult marriage commits his life to Jesus Christ and obeys the word of God and is fully committed to doing what God has given to him to do, and if a wife does the same thing and gets herself aligned with the Lord and obeying the word of God and and living under his authority, listen, that can only mean that they're gonna get together and have a strong, healthy, godly marriage. If both people are committed to the Lord, it's a matter of spiritual Surrender to God's will for your marriage. That's the purpose. It's about divine supremacy in the world and in our lives. Number seven, precision. Uh, The signs had specific uh, durations and geographic impact. They did not negatively affect the Hebrews. God's justice was directed at the Egyptians Uh, Even at one point, some of the livestock was spared. God was very particular and very precise about what he was doing. Number eight, the effectiveness of it all. Again, as God increased the intensity, Pharaoh began to get it and the people began to get it, that God was judging them and that God was real. Pharaoh acknowledged chapter eight, verse eight. Just look at this verse. 
Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, this is just in the second plague, he's already beginning to get it. Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Who believes him at this point? Okay, I wrote in the margin here, a politician's lie. That's all that that was. See, it doesn't mean that he's willing to bow the knee to God. It just means that he has, it's a, there's a limited acknowledgement. At least now he's recognizing who the Lord is. But he just wants the frogs gone because it's bad for the country. And it's bad for him. It's a limited acknowledgement. In chapter 8, later on, um, Pharaoh makes concessions. But God's not negotiating. He's not looking for a compromise. There's only one thing that needs to happen here. Pharaoh needs to release the Jews. God's intent is to vindicate completely his name and his people. And some of the Egyptian people were willing to see God at work and respond to his warnings, but they were unwilling to bow the knee. Chapter 9, verse 19, God gives uh, this warning concerning the hail that's going to come. And he says to them, he says, get your livestock out of the fields and put them under shelter. Get your slaves out and under shelter and they'll be safe from the hail. And some of the Egyptians listened and some of them didn't. Verse 20, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, the Egyptian people, hurried his slaves and his livestock into houses. Whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left the slaves and livestock in the field. The consequences were dire for them. Some of them were listening. They were beginning to get it. Even in chapter 9, verse 27, you seem to get this sense that Pharaoh's repenting. Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. This is, this is sign number eight, plague number seven. The intensity level is huge, and Pharaoh's beginning to say, but there's still more to come. Pharaoh's repentance is nothing more than a politician saying what he needs to say to achieve a desired result. A fair amount of that happening in our country these days. He's a pragmatist. He needs the hail to stop. He needs the locusts to leave. The bottom line is Pharaoh's not accustomed to having his authority challenged. The people saw him as a representative of God, and God was assaulting that all day long. They attributed omnipotence to him and Yahweh. The Lord was unleashing his power in a way that was challenging that, bringing Pharaoh to his knees, crushing their economy, crushing his power. Well, finally, this, the inevitability of it all. Pharaoh's final refusal in chapter 10. We need to look at this, verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day that you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. And Moses never went back to him. And this is before the 10th plague, the 11th sign, the death of the firstborns before any of that happens, and this was the last time they would see each other. Pharaoh would get his way. The most powerful sign yet would happen no matter what because it was according to God's plan. God hardened Pharaoh's heart throughout in order to fully accomplish his will and plan. 
But listen, Pharaoh, whatever you think of that God hardening his heart or Pharaoh's heart was hardened because of what God was doing, no matter how you look at all of that, I would just say God was hardening his heart, but Pharaoh was a willing recipient of the hardening. God's power on display throughout the whole point of looking at this is to see God's power on display. Now, here's why all of that matters to you and me 3,400 years later. God had a plan, a powerfully executed plan. He vindicated his people in Egypt, and he is no less interested in vindicating you today. And some of you have come in here in desperate places, in a dark place, in a deep valley, Some of you are carrying deep hurts with you. Some of you have been wronged. Some of you have people in your life who think less of you because you follow Jesus Christ, because you love him. Some of you have relationships that have gone badly. Sadly, some of you with fellow believers, you were wronged. You've not really spoken about it to anyone. You've, you've buried it. You've kept it to yourself. You've, you've not talked about it because you don't even want to hurt the other person, though they hurt you. Some of you have lost a job, though you acted with integrity according to God's word. Some of you have been divorced, and the reasons why are not fully known. You've absorbed it. Some of you have deep hurts that were put on you by others. And again, you never talk about it. And if you have been wronged, if you have been cheated, if you have been hated, if you have been put down and despised, if you have been stolen from, and if throughout it all you have been faithful and followed Jesus and acted according to his will, if you have sought peace with others insofar as that's possible with you, then God will, in his time, vindicate you. God will, in his time, give you justice. Don't think that if it doesn't come immediately, that you're never going to get it. I think we can fall into the trap of believing that justice needs to be served immediately. That's not God's way. Instead, we need to play the long game. Not fall into the trap of thinking that if I don't take matters into my own hand, if I don't defend myself, if I don't seek my own justice, that my enemy, in the broadest sense of that word, the one who hurt me, then my enemy might get away with it if I don't do it myself. And no one's getting away with anything. Every secret will be revealed. It's not ours to seek justice. In fact, I feel like this whole section could just be summed up by the Apostle Paul with this verse from Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
How often are we allowed to avenge ourselves according to the word? Uh, Never. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He's going to make everything right. And you and I need to leave it to him. We need to trust him. And if you do, the power of God will be unleashed in your life. The power to be saved, the power to walk with him, the power to use our gifts for his glory, the power to believe when we feel like we can't believe, the power to endure trials, the power to be bold in our witness. That's the power of God unleashed in our lives. Of all people on earth, the followers of Christ should be willing to play the long game and see God's power manifested in the way that God chooses. We should be the ones above all others to play the long game. Why? Because we've been waiting for 2,000 years and the whole time saying this. The words are crazy when you think about the time. But Jesus is coming, he's coming soon. He's coming soon. That is our hope. Let's pray. Father, help us, help us all by the power of your spirit to patiently endure all things. Father, to trust you every step of the way. God, this is a strong word uh, today uh, from Exodus, uh, one that I, I would imagine uh, many in this room uh, would need to hear as they uh, think of their own hurts and the injustices that have happened to them. And God, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do to assure them in these days of your word, to have them believe your promises without wavering and to have an unshakable hope in your perfect plan for their lives and for this world. So God, pour out your power in this place. Thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.